Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 15 are the words of Scripture that we're going to be reading this morning. So if you could read along in God's Word together with me, that would be great. Let's read God's Word together. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him. And he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The title of the message this morning is Tough and Tender Jesus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for your blessing on the preached word this morning, and we thank you so much for just your amazing grace and your steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, for the way you have sent your own Son down to die on the cross for sinners. Thank you for rising him from the dead, Father. You raising him from the dead secured our salvation, those of us who believe forever, and we love you for that. Strengthen us according to your word as we look at your word here this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, the word of God says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's, as B.B. Warfield once said, it is produced by God's creative breath. Every word of Scripture is inerrant and authoritative and is meant to be our guide in all rule and practice in the church. It's meant to be everything that we bank our lives on and we are meant to submit to its authority in all things. And all Scripture is God-breathed and it is useful, it is profitable. But that doesn't mean that, not, that all Scripture is easy to hear. There are truths that are just very easy to hear and then there are truths that are tough to hear. And Jesus speaks words that are tender and behaves in a way that's very tender. And then there's times where Jesus, when He's speaking, He's speaking the truth in love, but it's, it's, it's hard on the ear. And 
one of the reasons why uh, we as pastors really desire to preach through books of the Bible systematically the way we are, like in the Gospel of Matthew in our series, Follow Me, is because as we preach through books of the Bible and go through every verse, you come across sections of Scripture like this that uh, have portions of Scripture that are a little bit harder on the ear to us. And you know, if you just simply pick and choose from the Bible the stories that you want to hear, and you don't go through and listen to the teachings in the Scriptures that are hard to hear, you can start to develop a Christianity where you kind of develop this sort of cafeteria-style God where you go to the buffet called God's Word, and you pick out those things in God's Word that you like, and you, you plaster those, and you think upon those, but, but when it comes to the more challenging, harder truths of the Bible, you never ever focus on them, and you, you dodge away from them, and if, if you were just preaching topically through the Bible all the time in terms of building a church, you wouldn't tend to run to Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 15, for a Sunday where you're trying to gather people in and be seeker-sensitive to people. You don't tend to run to the rough truths, but the rough and harder truths of the Bible are vital for us to hear. And we must have an appetite, brothers and sisters, for the things that Jesus speaks that are easy on us. And we also need to have an appetite and a comprehension and an understanding of the truths of God's Word that are also hard for us as well. And there's some hard truths in here as well as some very tender truths and realities as we look at the life of Christ here in this passage. The first thing I want to look at together with you is tender Jesus. Tender Jesus. And we see that, I'm going to begin on the back end of this passage here in verses 13 through 15, after this section where Jesus speaks the truth to the Pharisees, it says, then children, children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. You see just this image of Jesus here laying his hands on little children. In other sections of scripture, we see that Jesus was actually laying his hands on infants, little children that couldn't even understand really who he was or what he was doing. And yet Jesus loved the little children and loves little children and lays his hands on them and prays for them. And this was such uh, a delight to our Savior that he took much time to do it. And the disciples, actually, as the people realized that this teacher was coming into town, they knew his reputation for loving children. They would bring their children. And the disciples, after a while, began to rebuke the people, it says in verse 13. And there's just a heart of Jesus here that's reflected in verse 14. But Jesus said, to his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and he went away. This let the little children come to me, there's a force behind this. There's a, a real intentionality behind this. And he says to his disciples, do not hinder them. And also don't hinder their parents from bringing them to me. Don't rebuke the parents don't hinder the little children from coming to me. There's a, there's a strong and a tough word from Jesus here to his disciples. And simultaneously, there's this tenderness in this man. Laying his hands on little children to bless them and to pray God's blessings down upon them and to receive them. And, and you see his heart here, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loves the little children, and, and those of us who come to Jesus in repentance and in faith must come before Jesus as little children. We must come dependent upon Him. We must come believing in Jesus. And often when you look in the eyes of a little child, you'll see such a willingness to, to, to submit to the truths of God's Word. To, their eyes will light up at the teaching of Jesus. They'll receive Jesus and His love and His mercy so willingly. And we must also, as adults, 
come to him as a little child dependent and believing upon Christ. And he says, do not hinder the little children. Now, I remember uh, years ago, there was a Christian who just said, you can tell a lot about a man by his attitude toward little children. Do we have time for them? Or do they really slow us down from doing more important things, so to speak? There's something about a man who is really passionate about getting things done, who works hard, but always has time to scoop up a little child and to encourage them and to pray and to bless them. I think we gentlemen should be like Jesus in relation to our own children. We should never be so busy that we don't have time to get down on the carpet and wrestle our little boys and play house with our little girls and to laugh with them and play with them and to pray with them and encourage them in the Lord to train them up in the gospel. And this is such an important call for us. And parents, grandparents, let us have this kind of heart. Let us, whether we have children of our own or don't have children of our own, let us have an attitude toward the little children in our church that is one of welcoming and receiving and delighting in their care and their well-being, like in the case of Jesus. Let us have this tender heart of Jesus for children and let us also share His his, his tough heart toward those who would seek to hinder children from hearing or seeing Jesus. We see some real tenderness there. And I'm really moved by it. We also see the, the tenderness of Jesus in verse 10. And the disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, they're talking here about the hard case of just marriage and the, and the challenges of the previous passage. He says it's better not... The disciples said it's better not to marry. They were just seeing the, 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 the seriousness of marriage and Jesus' high view of marriage, and they responded in that way. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this Receive it. Jesus is echoing the truth that you later see Paul expound on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he talks about marriage and the high view of marriage, but also the high calling of singleness as well. He talks and says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And later on, he also talks about how in verse 28, if you do marry, you have not sinned. So he who marries does well, but he who remains single does even better. There's a high view of marriage, but there's also a high view of singleness, or in this section, Jesus is talking about eunuchs, those who have chosen the pathway of celibacy. And there's a gift of celibacy and singleness that's given. And we must hold a high view of marriage, but also a high view of the calling of singleness and do everything we can to honor our singles and pray for our singles and hold up and honor the high calling of the undivided devotion to the Lord that Jesus gives to those who dedicate their lives for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We have men and women worthy of honor, single men and single women in our church who are worthy of honor for the way that they're walking out their lives in holiness and in honor as single brothers and sisters. And we just want to let you know, our dear single brothers and sisters, how much we honor you for the way you're living for Jesus in a culture that is so radically opposed to him and only getting more radically opposed to him. We honor you. We're so thankful for the difference that you're making for the kingdom of God in the midst of our church life. You see here Jesus holding up a high view of marriage as well as a high view of singleness. He speaks tenderly, but he also speaks truthfully. The second point I want to look at here is the truthful Jesus truthful Jesus. We see 
beginning in verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So you see large crowds pressing in on Jesus. He's, he's, he's blessing the little children that are coming to him. He's also healing the large crowds that are coming to him. He must have been exhausted, brothers and sisters. He was a very busy man with much to do, but he always had time for everyone who came to him. And I am so blessed. And he tried to get away for rest. And at many times, the crowds followed him where he would try to get away and rest. And you don't see him. He was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. He never got frustrated with people. He never got angry. He was tempted in every way as we are, but he received little children and their parents and blessed them. And he prayed for and healed the large crowds that followed him. You see the tenderness and the kindness of Jesus. And in the midst of all of this wonderful, kind ministry, the Pharisees come up to him and they test him. He's trying to do good and he's got individuals coming to try to test him and tempt him into error and into sin. And Jesus just had it coming at him all the time. And maybe you can feel that way as well. You're just trying to live your life in faithfulness to God and stuff just keeps coming at you. And that's what Jesus' life was like. And know that he understands all that you're going through. They tested him and they asked him this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There was a testing heart of the Pharisees here. They weren't really interested in the truth, but they were trying to get Jesus to say something that would be in contradiction to Moses, so then they would have him. And they could really blast him then. And they already hated him without cause, but they were looking to destroy his reputation in the eyes of the people and also have just cause even more to put him to death. And so this is why, this is their motive for coming to him. It's, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This question here is just as relevant today as it was when it was first given. The culture of the time that Jesus was ministering in here was a culture of easy divorce. The Pharisees had become so liberal in their interpretation of Scripture and liberal in their perspective on divorce. Some of that was even at a high watermark from the Rabbi Hillel who died about 20 years before Jesus was born, who taught that you really could divorce your wife for really any reason at all, even if there's a meal that she cooks that she burns and it's to your displeasure. You can divorce her for that. And it was almost venerated as a pathway of righteousness to be able to just divorce for any reason. And that's the culture that the Pharisees are coming from. And simultaneously, you've got on the other side, uh, numerous rabbis who were teaching that there is no grounds for divorce whatsoever, no matter what the case. You had a very loose and low view of marriage, but then on the other hand, you had a view on marriage where there was no grounds ever for divorce. And so this is the culture Jesus finds himself in as he's being asked this question. And he answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus takes them not back to Moses. He takes them back even further to the very beginning, to creation. And God's design in the creation of marriage, the good design of God, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That word hold fast talks of a deep bond, a covenant commitment one to another as husband and wife. It's also used in the language of Ruth clinging to Naomi and and, and saying, wherever you go, Naomi, I'm going to follow you and, and, and worship the God that you worship. And she held fast to her. That In marriage, there's a bond, a one flesh union produced by God and His Spirit, but also the commitment of two individuals coming together in a covenant 
to hold fast to one another. They become one flesh. And not just physically, but the more spiritual reality of this is they no longer are two, but they are one. And that is a high view from the very beginning of the call to marriage. And Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate you know, it's it's a, a culture very similar in the culture we live in today. I remember uh, my wife and I will be married 19 years this coming July, and so thankful for my wife Shannon. And I remember when we went on our five-year anniversary trip, we like to try to sometimes take an overnight on an anniversary just to go and celebrate and and just give thanks to God for His faithfulness. We were on our five-year anniversary. We were down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And we were in a restaurant there, and uh, we just told the waitress, hey, listen, could you take a picture of us? And uh, we got a picture and uh, just told the waitress, hey, we're, we're celebrating five years today. And uh, she just stopped and pondered, and she just said, oh, my goodness. You just don't hear about that much anymore. And I remember Shannon and I, we were eating, and I realized that this this woman who said this to us, it was just, you know, you the way, that kind of a comment, you just don't see that anymore, normally is reserved for couples when we talk about them having their 50th wedding anniversary, or their 25th, if you will, or, and she was saying that she just doesn't see individuals having their five-year anniversary of marriage anymore. This woman, in her life experience, was just testifying and calling it like she saw it. And it just affected Shannon and I that there's a reality that in our culture, divorce is something that is very rampant. And it's the same culture that Jesus was in as well, where divorce was very easy to come by, almost as easy as it was to get married. Jesus holds up a high view of marriage. Jesus answers them and he takes them back before Moses to the original creation design. He portrays the beauty of marriage and the beauty of it by saying what God has joined together. God has joined a married couple, male and female together. And that reality is something that's so beautiful and he it's interesting that Jesus could have just answered this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And just could have said, uh, no. Next question. He doesn't do that. He takes them back to the Word of God. And you see just the, the tender and winsomeness of Jesus that he, he, he shares God's Word with the Pharisees who, in their pride, they prided themselves on their knowledge of Scripture and were talking here and trying to pit Jesus against Moses and Jesus takes them all the way back to the very beginning so wisely and so wonderfully to show the beauty of marriage. What God has joined together. Brothers and sisters, that's meant to give us vision. All of us who are married in this room, the phrase what God has joined together is meant to give us vision. Vision that it's God who brought us together. It was not of your own will, firstly, but of God's to bring you together with your spouse. No matter what the conditions were of your marriage at the time, whether you had thousands of individuals around you in a grand wedding celebration, or whether you got married at the justice of the peace, God is the one who brought that marriage covenant together. And and the, the Lord Jesus is holding this up to remind us that God is the one who sovereignly brings a married couple together and He's infinitely wise in how He does it and why He does it. And and the Lord is behind it all, joining couples together in the covenant of marriage. And we need to be reminded of that. Because vision and fresh vision is needed for marriage for all of us. Vision helps us make the best of it. 
Without vision, Scripture says the people perish. And the enemy wants to hide a high and grand and holy and beautiful vision of marriage and the fact that God is the one who brought you together and obscure that and eclipse that and, and, and just show you nonstop your spouse's failures and sins and take the beauty and rob you of all glorious design and, and visions of God in your marriage so that it'll make it easy for you to walk away. Vision helps you to make the best of it. But there's also perspective here. What God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together is also a perspective that's meant to keep you in it in hard times. And there will be hard times. Every single marriage goes through hard times and not just hard seasons. Long, hard trials from one spouse to another. There are individuals for whom it's the case that their spouse is the greatest trial that they're facing in their life. And this perspective is meant to keep us in it. This vision that Jesus cast, that God has joined us together, is meant to help us to make the best of it. And may God give us grace to have this high and holy and sacred and beautiful vision of marriage that Jesus holds out here in the face of our culture, which really looks at marriage as just something that can easily be done and also easily moved away from. Brothers and sisters, this is so, so important for us to have in our hearts. He says here, Let not man separate, verse 6. He's answering the the Pharisees' question, is it right to divorce a wife for any cause? Let not man separate, Jesus answers. And then in verse 9, he goes on. When they counter him in verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He says to them, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. It's important to note here that these words of command from Jesus and are, are coming in the face of the Pharisees, actually saying, look in verse 7, that Moses commanded to give a certificate of divorce and send a wife away. If the passage you're touching in on is from Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, there's no command from Moses to do this. You see the way that the, the way that we can twist God's word in order to accommodate our sinful inclinations if we're not careful. And the Pharisees did that. They claimed to boast to know God's word, but through the centuries they took Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 and actually turned what was a permissible allowance for divorce and they started turning it into it's a command. And you can just see the subtle craftiness of the evil one and how he wants to just get us to, to be able to twist God's word a little bit. And say, Did God really say? I don't know that he says. Does that sound like a good God that would say that to you, that would deprive you of eating of this fruit from this tree? Does that sound like a good God to you? Did God really say that? And to get us questioning that, get us moving away from the Word of God, or getting us to reinterpret the Word of God according to what our desires are. And, and all of a sudden, this culture forms where divorce was actually not just allowed in certain instances, according to Moses, but Moses commanded. Look at that language there. And it's so important to make note that that is a temptation. And once we twist the scriptures, it becomes very easy then because our conscience in times of difficulty, the word of God holds us bound at times to continue to obey, to continue to stick it out. And if the enemy can get us to just relax the commandment of God in a way that enables us to be able to get out from under our obligations to follow Jesus in these ways, we will. And we just have to be aware, brothers and sisters, of the subtle works of the enemy and the ways he twists scripture. He tried to do that with Jesus as well in the wilderness. And Jesus came right back at him with the clear word of God. And Jesus does that here with the Pharisees. He says, 
He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you. Do you see that? There was an allowance for divorce, not a command. Jesus corrects that misinterpretation. He says he allowed you to divorce your wives, but then from the beginning it was not so. He anchors the truth about the high view of marriage and what God has joined together. Let man not separate, and a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Bound in that commitment, he roots that in the word of God and helps them to see that from the beginning it was not so. And then he says this, I say to you, so this is a command from Jesus, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So to answer your question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? No. If you divorce your wife except for sexual immorality, and marry another, you actually are guilty of breaking one of the Ten Commandments. It's it's something that he holds up the law. They're trying to get it to see him denigrate the law, and he actually holds up the law and tells them the heart of God in the law, that they are meant to hold fast. They are meant to have vision that God has joined this marriage together, and we are as well, brothers and sisters. And the Pharisees, hated him for this. And ultimately, Jesus was put to death because there was just no place in their heart for repentance and turning to and following Jesus Christ and his ways. And brothers and sisters, these are hard truths in the midst of our culture, but I want to encourage you with this. Following Jesus is the pathway to eternal happiness. Following Jesus is the pathway to eternal happiness. We've got to love tender Jesus, and we also have to love truthful Jesus and tough truthful Jesus. We can't have a cafeteria-style Jesus that embraces Jesus for the things we love about Jesus, but ignores the truth of Jesus when we don't find it convenient to follow Him in that path. We cannot say to God, I'll follow you, God, but on my terms. We must come and submit ourselves under the Word of God, under the authority of Jesus, and say, Lord, I'll follow you no matter what, and no matter how hard it is. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us submit to Jesus' commands. And know that, as the Word of God says, His commandments are not burdensome. They are for our good. We tend to think the commands are going to rob us of our joy. That is a lie from Satan. God's commandments are life. God's commandments are not burdensome. And we must beware, friends, at this moment as we look at this because this is something that we all can be tempted to, whether it's regarding our marriages or just regarding indwelling sin and sin in general. I mentioned this last week. We must beware of a hard and unforgiving heart toward our spouse, toward our children, children toward your parents, We must beware of a hard and unforgiving heart. Now listen, it doesn't mean that you've been not much tempted. It is so hard to have to live under someone's repeated sins year after year. And we must have sympathy and compassion for those who have. And give them safe harbor here to share their burdens and to weep with them as they weep and care and sympathize and love and be patient and kind. And But all of us, all of us need to beware of a hard and unforgiving heart. Because the context, remember last week, the context of this passage is in verse 34 of Matthew 18. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, verse 35, this is Jesus' words again. Another tough phrase from Jesus. Tough 
phrase from tender Jesus, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There is a call for all of us, since we've been forgiven by God of a great debt, to also forgive our debtors. And unforgiveness is a serious sin in the eyes of God. Hardness of heart in me is something I've got to constantly be paying careful attention to, toward my, my, my spouse, toward my children, and toward loved ones, brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, toward unbelievers, co-workers. Hardness of heart is an enemy to our souls. We've all, we are all tempted to this. But here in particular, related to marriage, it's something that's so, so vital. Following Jesus means Staying in your marriage unless there has been sexual immorality. This allowance is an allowance that needs to be said and spoken. Divorce is allowable in the case of sexual immorality, but not mandated. It's not mandated in that instance. And great will be the reward in heaven for spouses who have been sinned against by their spouse committing adultery on them. And rather than divorce, which would have been their allowance, they choose to forgive and work on the marriage and help their spouse repent, help their spouse on to continue on the journey toward heaven. It is great reward in heaven. If Jesus will not fail to reward a cup of cold water given in his name, how much more a spouse who is born under much pain and difficulty and continues to be faithful. Great reward in heaven, brother. Great reward, sister, for the individual who forgives and guards their heart from becoming hard after being under much affliction and difficulty. And we must applaud, and I applaud all of you, brothers and sisters, who are in very difficult marriages and you continue to persevere. So proud of you. So hard. You have our prayers. You have our support. You have our encouragement. And we're going to be here with you to stand by your side to help you through all the difficulties in the days ahead. We are your church family. We are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we love you. We care about you. And when there's been a case of sexual immorality and adultery, there is an allowance though that Jesus gives for divorce. The other allowance is in 1 Corinthians 7. If an unbelieving spouse deserts their believing spouse, desertion, abandonment, refusing to live any longer with their Christian spouse, the Christian spouse is no longer bound, 1 Corinthians 7 says, they are free to remarry in the Lord, must be a Christian. And I want to emphasize that again. I hit that last week, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. If you're single, you must pursue and marry another Christian. It's it's so vital to do that. But listen, if you've married somebody who was an unbeliever, God was in that. And it talks about that if an unbelieving spouse is seeking to continue to live with you, you must not divorce them. You must stay faithful in that marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about It also says in 1 Corinthians 7, and I want to just make sure you hear this from the Word of God directly. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. So there's a call there to not separate. But verse 11, but if she does. So there's again, in certain situations, and I think in particular, I want to highlight, if a spouse were to feel under threat, physical violence from their spouse or perceive that one of their children or the children are under threat from physical violence. I want to just say to all of you, you will find your pastors behind you in support to get you to safety. And we will stand by you and protect you and make sure that you and your children are kept safe from a spouse that is hardening their heart and actually acting out in violence. And if you are doing that, brother or sister, you must repent of that. That is a very, very serious sin and erodes Someone's trust to be able to stay in the marriage. But in the midst of that, temporary separation is allowable if she does. But she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. There must be in a separation, a pathway back toward reconciliation in a marriage. And the husband should not divorce. 
his wife. There's a real spirit throughout scripture of, of fighting for marriage. In Malachi chapter 2, it talks about God hates divorce. That's an overlay throughout the scriptures, but these allowances are there because God is a gracious God. And if you perceive yourself to be in harm's way, please, I, I want you to know that we are here for you as your pastors. We will do everything we can to help safeguard your care group leaders, individuals in your care group. Like John was saying, we are, we are in this together through thick and thin. We want to help each other through the joys of life, but also our hardest and lowest times as well. That's the kind of body we want to be. We want to make sure that women and children are protected from sinful and abusive and mean husbands and do everything we can. And brothers, if that's you, I want to urge you to repent. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh. Harshness tempts a spouse to want to flee, and justifiably so. The day in, day out, year in, year out, berating of a spouse justifiably tempts. And you must repent, brother. You must repent, sister, if that's you. This is something that's so important for us to take seriously and to make sure that we're fighting. But in in all of these instances, we must fight to preserve the marriage covenant and hold fast one to another and remember that God is the one who has joined us together for all the challenges and the mess that we're walking through and the difficulties. God is sovereign in these things. We must work through them and not be runners. Christians aren't meant to be runners and fleers from difficulty. We are meant to work through our challenges and to work through difficulty and unreconciled situations toward reconciliation. In marriage, but also in our relationships within the church. We don't give up on one another. We hold fast, most importantly in marriage, but we also hold fast to one another in our bonds as brothers and sisters in the Spirit, in the Lord. And we don't desert one another or flee from one another and turn away from one another lightly. But these allowances are real. Listen, for those who have sinned in this way, those of you, there's some in the room who have sinned in this way. You have divorced, and it's not been for just only the case of sexual immorality, and you've married another. Scripture says you've committed adultery. You commit adultery. What do you do? Repent. Just because maybe even you're remarried now in the Lord, God's blessings on that marriage, but you must look back on the sins of the past, all of us. And we all have sins of the past to look back on. Whenever the Holy Spirit makes us aware that there's sins in the past that we haven't yet dealt, done with, dealt with with God, repent where you are. Tell God, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the way I've sinned against you in my past. Please forgive me. And you, you will be forgiven. Forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. And there's no condemnation. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, but it's important whenever the Holy Spirit pings you with a remembrance and a conviction of past sin, don't run away from that. Own that and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for my sexual immorality of the past. Forgive me for the way that I've had unlawful divorce or divorces in the past. Forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, no condemnation. We're celebrating communion in a few moments with the broken body of the Lord and the shed blood of our Lord. He died to atone for all of our sins. And for those who have sinned in this way, for all of us coming alongside of them, we want to make sure that they feel no condemnation and they feel our acceptance and we feel the, the current blessing on their new marriage covenant because they are forgiven by God and stay faithful to your current wife or current husband and continue to be faithful to your new marriage covenant. But truly, repent and you will be forgiven. Don't look back on the past you want to share God's heart about your past and repent where you are convicted of sin. We want to beware, brothers and sisters, of justifying disobedience to God that we're planning to commit because of this logic. God will forgive me in the future. It's a very, very crafty lie of the enemy when we're most tempted he will come up in our ears and say, hey, listen, you can commit this sin. God will forgive you in the future. 
You don't want to presume upon your future repentance. You want to hold fast to obedience to Christ and not use the excuse, God will forgive me to justify sexual immorality now or adultery and breaking your marriage covenant. Individuals are in hell right now because of that logic. Satan got him the bite. And he's a crafty liar to tempt. And he just wants to lead us away to destruction. He will use whatever lie he can. God is very kind. He does forgive the repentant sinner. When we come before him in repentance and faith, he is so kind. I am a recipient of so much forgiveness from God. And I'm so grateful for that forgiveness. But when I'm tempted and I get tempted, just like we all do, we don't want to say, oh, God will forgive me so I can sin now. That is a very, very serious thing. And if we are tempted in that way, talk with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If any of you are tempted right now towards sexual immorality, sexual relations outside of the marriage covenant, or maybe you're living in sexual sin right now, I want to urge you to repent and come out into the light and turn away from that darkness and turn toward Jesus. Because following Jesus is the pathway to eternal happiness. And if we do not repent and we just hold hard in our heart, I'm going to continue to pursue my happiness. I'm going to continue to pursue my sin. Brothers and sisters, we can deceive ourselves by by going to church and continuing to keep a lot of religious trappings around us. But if our heart is far away from God, God sees that. And he's reaching out to you in mercy and grace right now to bring you back to himself. So if you are living in sexual immorality or recognize that you are aware, oh, I've been living in adultery. Ask God for forgiveness and he will forgive you. For those of us who haven't committed physical adultery, I would have us ponder Jesus' words in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart with her. And likewise, ladies, anyone who looks upon a man lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart or sexual immorality in your heart. We are all adulterers in the heart. And so we should be very compassionate Toward those who have stumbled and fallen into that actual sin, they should find us willing to come alongside of them and help them and encourage them toward Christ. We should be careful, brothers and sisters, in our counsel to individuals who are living in unrepentant sin. Listen very carefully. We want to have compassion for them. We want to love them in Christ. We want them to feel safe harbor. We don't want them to feel self-righteousness on our part. We want them to be embraced in the warmth of our encouragement and our Christ-like love. But brothers and sisters, we must, as counselors, make sure that we counsel people, listen carefully, counsel people out of a desire to see them walk in the truth. Always counsel people out of a desire to see them walk in the truth above all else. And I'll say even this, even a good desire To want to see your loved one or your friend happy. That's the great challenge. Someone who has suffered much, especially in a very difficult marriage. Every one of us, and I think it's a godly thing, to want to see our brother or our sister or our our family member happy. And it's just been so hard for them for so long. And and your heart bleeds for them, and it should. And, And we should have our heart bleed if, if you're just cold and callous and you just speak truth without compassion or truth without a desire to see your brother or your sister happy and enjoying life, then something's wrong in our hearts. But brothers and sisters, our desire to see our friends, our loved ones, our co-workers, our family members, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, happy should never trump the truth. Ever. And we do them a disservice to their eternal happiness. If we give counsel that is not in alignment with God's word, we've got to be careful that we are compassionate and we speak in love, but we speak the truth in love. That we don't relax the commandments of God, which the Pharisees were doing to make divorce allowable in any instance, But also, on the other side of it, listen carefully, we got to make sure that we also don't make the commandments of God 
and go beyond the commandments of God and say, there's no allowable accounts in Scripture for divorce when there is. There are individuals who even counsel today that there is there should be no divorce under any circumstances. And brothers and sisters, I think that they do violence to the Word of God because Matthew chapter 19, Jesus Himself says, in the case of sexual immorality or adultery, and in 1 Corinthians 7, the Word of God talks about in the case of a spouse who is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse who no longer will live with them, there is justifiable grounds biblically for divorce. And we must make sure that we don't relax the commandments of God or make the commandments of God even more stringent than they are. We've got to present the Word of God to people, the timeless and unchanging Word of God with grace and mercy and compassion and no judgment and make sure that our brothers and sisters who are suffering and struggling feel us coming alongside of them with tenderness and compassion and love. And But for all of us, I want to share this story. And ushers, if you can begin to grab the uh, the elements for communion and move forward to distribute those. Let's prepare our hearts. I know this is a heavy message and it's a heavy text. I want you to know that I share it with love in my heart. Wayne Grudem says that the issue is not whether we say we believe the Bible is the Word of God or that we believe it's without error. But the issue is whether we actually obey it when its teachings are unpopular and conflict with the dominant viewpoints in our culture. Thanks, Rob. It's not enough for us simply to say we believe it and we believe it's without error. Does it function as our functional authority in our lives? In 1984, listen carefully to this illustration. Washington Redskins quarterback Joe Theismann had the team's public relations office issue a press release announcing his separation from his wife, Sherry. Hollywood Joe already had committed adultery with a popular TV personality whom he went on to date for years. And in the proceedings for the divorce from his second wife, it came out that he said adultery was okay because, and I quote, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. With no judgment do I look upon that expression because you know what? I might not actually say the words, but I can often function with that mentality that God wants C.B. Etter to be happy. And I see within my own heart the capability to destroy my marriage covenant, to, to rip my kids' lives apart, to walk away from all of you, to break my love for all of you, and break, most importantly, my devotion to Christ like Esau did, to sell my birthright for a bowl of porridge, which is what his sexual immorality was likened to in Hebrews chapter 12. All of us have a tendency to walk away from things that are precious and dear out of a moment's temptation, and not just a moment's temptation, but sometimes under years of hard temptation, to want to get out and get relief from our suffering. But deep down in our heart, that phrase that was spoken so publicly, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you this. Listen carefully. I would rather have a hundred years of unhappiness here following Jesus, carrying the cross, and get to eternal happiness in heaven than to gain a hundred years of temporal happiness here 
through disobedience to God and his word and get eternal hell. Think about this logically. It does not make sense to trade even a hundred years, and we wouldn't even get that, of temporary pleasure in a fulfilling and satisfying relationship that where Satan promises you're going to get relief out from all of your troubles if you just leave this marriage and go and, and go with this other guy or go with this, this other woman. There could be all of these promises. And whatever happiness you would purchase through that disobedience and adultery, whatever temporal happiness you would gain, oh, brother, sister, if you did not repent of it, but continued on in it, in an unrepentant state, you and I would get eternal hell. Friends, no pleasure, no fulfilling relationship in this life is worth that. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross it's not easy. It's hard. And may, by God's grace, as you partake and I partake of the elements of communion this morning, brothers and sisters, may we pledge yet again, Jesus, following you is the pathway to eternal happiness. And I would rather have a hundred years of difficulty here following you and carrying my cross and get eternal happiness in heaven with you than to sell my birthright for a bowl of porridge and purchase temporal happiness and temporal relief at the expense of my eternal soul in hell. Friends, it really is that serious. People really do every day make decisions to enter into sexual immorality or adultery or to break their marriage covenants and they don't have biblical grounds to do it and it is so painful to watch as lives are destroyed, children's lives are destroyed. It just breaks all of our hearts. Let us be a band of brothers and sisters and rally around one another and remind each other of who we're following. You know who we're following? We are following the one whose body was broken not fulfilled. His body was broken. His life was cut short at 33. He didn't get this great, happy life. He had a cross beam on his back that was real. He suffered and shed real blood in order to bring all of us in this room to God who have repented and believed. He is worthy of every sacrifice we can make. And I always think, God, you might not ask me to lay down and become a martyr for you and to, to die for you like the Christians of old in the Colosseum, but Lord, you might call me to endure difficulty and trial that just doesn't seem to stop and just it keeps pressing in harder and harder. And I just want relief and I want out from it. I want it to end. And God says, no, CB, my son, I know what's best for you. I know what's good for you. I'm going to keep you in this. I'm going to hold you fast in that. Will you trust me? Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And God wants you and me this morning as we partake of communion here, to say, God, I trust you. God, I obey you. Not just on the easy ones. I want to obey you on the hard ones as well. When your commandment, I know you say in your word that your commandment isn't burdensome, God, but it feels burdensome. Talk to him, pour out your complaint to him, pour out your heart to him and let him be the heavenly father that he is who loves you with tender compassion. God understands what it's like to be married to an unfaithful and difficult spouse. Have we been a faithful bride to him? No, but he has been faithful to us. So faithful that on the night before, the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread 
And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Brothers and sisters, let us remember the broken body of our Lord. He suffered and died to bring us to God. Thank you so much, Jesus. Let's remember. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again. Drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, let us remember the shed blood of our Lord Jesus that has atoned for all of our sins, for all of us who have repented and believed in him. Let us partake of the cup. Josh, if you and the worship band could return, let us close in prayer. And uh, let us all stand as we close in prayer before we worship. Church, thank you so much for just your faithfulness to the Word of God. And this was a little bit of a harder, heavier, longer sermon. But I believe God had something, has something for us in this today. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, following you is the pathway to eternal happiness. And Lord, following you is not always easy. You never promised us an easy life. You never promised us an easy marriage. Lord God, but you call us to be faithful to you. Lord, for all of us, as we ponder our sins in, in the past and in the present, and even as we look into the future, and we know, Lord God, because we are still sinners, we, we fail you every day. Lord, we just want to thank you for your broken body and your shed blood that has atoned for all of our transgressions and sins. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, even as we close and worship here, I pray that we would recommit our lives to following you and your, your broken road of suffering, Lord. That we would pledge once again to take up our cross and follow you. That we would lay down the world's lies that we deserve to have a happy life here in this life. And every day we hear that through the media and everything that's shouting at us from this world. And Satan is cheering us on to say, you deserve to be happy. You deserve. God wants you to be happy. Go ahead and go and disobey him. Lord, help us in those times of weakness to say, no, get behind me, Satan. I'm going to continue to follow my Jesus who took up the cross and went to the cross for my sake. And it is my joy and my honor to daily take up the cross and follow Him. And God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would empower us to cross over the finish line. Help us, Almighty God, not just to to run for a short while, but help us to run the race all the way to the end, looking unto You, Jesus. And I, Lord, I pray that You would empower all of us to endure Many of my brothers and sisters are just much embattled right now. Holy Spirit, come and strengthen them to continue to be faithful. Lord, strengthen us as a local church to continue to be faithful. Help us to be followers of you and obeyers of you, not just on the easy ones, but on the hard ones as well. And God, help us to be a church family where there's no self-righteousness and no judgment, but an embrace and a warm embrace of one another. Our brothers and sisters who are embattled, who are struggling, who are in pain, that they would feel compassionate counselors who come alongside of them even as they speak the truth to them. Almighty God, help us. Help us all. Lord, we are so thankful that we're saved. Thank you so much, Jesus, for opening up our eyes to believe in you. We worship you now in closing in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you, church. Let us worship the Lord. He's worthy of our worship. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Him, we are forgiven of all that we have done. 
we can turn to the Lord and say, Lord, oh, forgive me for every fresh memory of my past that comes up where I have sinned and grieved you and your spirit. Forgive me. And we know that his shed blood covers that. We are forgiven. felt an impression from the Holy Spirit as we were worshiping there that I believe that there's place for all of us as spouses to ask God for forgiveness for the sins that we've done and also receive God's forgiveness, but also spouse to spouse, wherever the Holy Spirit was convicting you today, to ask your spouse for forgiveness for what you were convicted of in yourself with where you've fallen short as a spouse, and to do that one to another, but also to extend forgiveness as well. It might be hard for you to do, but I believe the Lord would call you to really extend forgiveness even as you've been forgiven. That might be an easy thing. That might be a very difficult thing. We as your pastors, your small group leaders, we are here to help you with the challenging times in your marriages. I want you to know you're not alone. There are many marriages that are suffering and struggling and are hard. And we want to stand by one another and help each other in the midst of the burdens that we're carrying in this life. And we want to be a church family that is on a great mission, but also that we're a hospital that also cares to all of our wounds. And I include myself in amongst the wounded that needs care. We are all in this together. Let us love one another and surround one another with love and mercy and compassion, forgiveness and tenderness and help one another in the midst of our battles. Amen. Love you, church. Have a wonderful week. What a Savior. Amen. Aren't you so glad we got Jesus? Aren't you so glad we got him? We love you, Jesus. We love you so much. We're so glad we've got you. Amen. Have a wonderful day.